even if you are in a very difficult set of circumstances, these types of exercises in writing, using these questions as prompt, can bring up ideas that would never otherwise occur to you as options. Welcome to another episode of Success Through Failure, the show for successful people and for those who want to become successful, the only show that reveals the true nature of success. This is your host, Jim Harshaw Jr., and today I'm bringing you a rewind. This is the first time I've ever republished an episode. Why would I do this? Well, have you ever read a book twice because it was so good? Or you read a book and then you have you know, notes and underlines and highlights, and every time you go back and you flip through the book and you reread those things, you just get more and more out of it. For me, probably the book I do have done that with the most is How to Win Friends and Influence People. I've just read and reread that book so many times, and I have so many underlines and writings in the margins, and, and I, every time I actually flip through it, I actually get more out of it, and I, I'm underlining more and highlighting more and taking more notes. Well, I'm going to do this today with one of my favorite interviews ever. And this is with Tim Ferriss. Now, if you don't know who Tim Ferriss is and you've been living under a rock, he is a five-time number one New York Times bestselling author, and he has a huge podcast, and he's a pretty big influencer, pretty incredible guy, just in terms of the way he thinks and the way he has systems and frameworks around thinking and solving problems. And... I feel what I got out of him in this episode, actually, I broke this interview into two episodes three years ago when I published it, and I'm bringing it to you today in one single episode. But what I've done is really distilled down his frameworks and his thinking into a really condensed version of Tim Ferriss. You don't have to go listen to all of his podcasts and, and read all of his books to get what you're going to get out of this when you listen to this episode. It's just the condensed, really good stuff. And I've talked to so many listeners recently who have said they didn't even know I interviewed Tim. And so I want to bring this back up for those of you who have never listened to it or didn't know I interviewed Tim. And for those of you who have actually listened to this episode before, I encourage you to give this one another listen because just like reviewing that old book that you've read before that you loved, you're going to get so much more out of this episode the second time around. The topics we discussed have become even more relevant and more timely in the years since the interview. We talk about productivity. We talk about morning routines. We talk about investing and, of course, success through failure. So if you know a friend who likes Tim Ferriss, who listens to his podcast or reads his books, Give this one a share. Episode 406 is my new episode here with Tim Ferriss. And I look forward to hearing your thoughts on this. Share your thoughts, your reactions to this episode. Uh, you can tweet at me or you can comment on any posts of mine on Twitter or Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram. I look forward to engaging with you, hearing your thoughts on this episode. What are your biggest takeaways? And is there anything in here you're like, man, that doesn't work for me? Anything you would rebut that Tim actually shares? So, all right, here we go. Rewind my interview from 2020 with Tim Ferriss. Most of my listeners know who you are. They know that you are an experimenter. You're a person who's tested a lot of routines. I like to think of them as peak performance routines just for, for the average person, right? Not the, not the athlete necessarily. But I want to hear from you, Tim. Like You hear about morning routines. You talk about, you hear about people who, you know, you got to wake up at 5 a.m. and then meditation, yoga, exercise, bulletproof coffee, writing, journaling, eating protein right away, or intermittent fasting. Like, what for you has stuck? I think as, uh, as context, I want to say a few things. Number one is that if you were to take all of the optimized morning routines of the people you respect and layer them on top of one another, your morning is going to last until 4 p.m. So you really, <laughs> right. you really have right. to pick and choose. Number two is that I think one of the misconceptions perhaps about me is that I use routines to become super optimized, but that's not my first priority. Much like with weight training, my first priority is to decrease the likelihood of injury, not increase performance. For me with routines, I need stability or at least predictability, certainty in the form of routines to get to normal. And I just want to make that point because I think it's very important. And that is at least my impression of what we call normal societally is someone who is reasonably emotionally stable, sort of energetically reasonably stable, et cetera, et cetera. The things that you might put in that category of normal. 
And I have a very extensive history of struggling with depression, although in the last four to five years, I'd say six years, really, that's improved dramatically. And I could speak to that. But I've had a lot of struggles that have caused me to have chaotic days and chaotic days have caused me to have worse symptoms related to depression and anxiety. But I need routines and structure to get to normal. And so I think that's, that's what I'd want to say first. Some of the things that have stuck for me, at least if I'm looking right now at my routines, for instance, routines equal sanity. And the more uncertain your life seems, the more valuable certain levels of predictability are. So I have a few things. Number one, consistent breakfast. Right? I don't pick and choose as if I'm at a buffet line in some type of gourmet restaurant. I have standard meals that I tend to rotate through. I have standard teas that I tend to rotate through in the morning. When I'm feeling overwhelmed, my go-to meditation is not guided meditation because I find my mind to just be too stochastic and all over the place. It would be transcendental meditation. So 20 minutes of TM, repeating a mantra, which is a word I dislike, but it could just as easily be a simple word like nature or it could be a phrase like no struggle. It could be any number of things. Repeating that to give your mind a break from the other noise that might be generated without that type of overriding signal, right? So transcendental meditation would be one during times of overwhelm. Another would be cold exposure or alternating temperature therapy of some type. It could be hot bath to cold shower. I happen to have a pool, a small pool, but nonetheless, it's still pretty chilly. So I'm using that. I have a chest freezer that I use once that gets too warm. Let's get a pretty reasonably inexpensive chest freezer. And please talk to a proper electrician before you do anything. <laughs> I do not want to be responsible. I'm not responsible for anyone who electrocutes themselves. Sure. But chest freezer, uh, this is actually based on something uh, former MMA fighter Kyle Kingsbury has done, which is modify, call can modify a simple chest freezer, which you can get for 200 bucks, 300 bucks, to be used as a constant temperature cold plunge. Uh, so that, that would be another. And then if I'm feeling exceptionally under duress, and um, this is not to blame external factors, but if, if I feel like I am just unstable for some reason, or having an acute stress response to something that shouldn't produce such an acute stress response, does that make sense? Like I've, I've sure. had, for instance, a lot, this is going to sound ridiculous, and I apologize in advance if it sounds obnoxious, but I've had a lot of stress around finances come up in the last week. I mean, sure. acute financial worry. And it makes no sense to me. If I look at on paper, my circumstances, it makes no sense, right? So there's there's more to the story than just what's on the paper. Yeah, right. Something internal. Exactly. So to try to sort through that, I think morning pages, which are most famously from a book called The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron, but the right. practice of morning pages is a fantastic way, the term she uses, of enabling spiritual windshield wipers or just taking your monkey mind and trapping it on paper so that you can take a break from whatever that loop is that you happen to be caught in. And morning pages, therefore, is another safety net that I use on a regular basis. And we, we could spend an entire episode talking about exercise, but ultimately, mind and body separation, this sort of Cartesian duality is, I think, completely artificial. I don't think that's controversial. So you, you can affect your mental state and biochemistry, neurochemistry through exercise. So getting at least an hour or two of walking in per day, I could speak to the benefits of, say, strength training, which I also do. I could speak to the benefits of high-intensity interval, interval training, which I do these days on the Peloton. But walking itself, I mean, we are evolved to walk, that we've made many, many evolutionary trade-offs to be able to walk long distances. And I, I do think there is an intrinsic therapeutic value to walking, at least for me, at least an hour or two a day. And if I look at my sleep quality, 
it is directly correlated with the amount of walking, not necessarily wow. the intensity of exercise or caloric expenditure, but walking specifically. Now, that could be false causality where it has nothing to do with the walking. It's that I'm outside getting sun. I mean, who knows, sure. right? But nonetheless, those are a handful of things that come to mind offhand as real bedrocks. But that is to say, none of these are rocket science. And I think that when I get myself into trouble and conversely, when I am doing best, functioning at what some people might consider a very high level, it's because I am consistently not doing or consistently doing a handful of foundational things. It is not because I have some like secret Tibetan monk groin stretch that I do on a bed of nails while drinking a special Pu'er tea that enables these things. It's the fundamentals. Yeah. And for my listeners, you know, I talk about core habits, like, you know, the, the 80, 20 rule, right? It's like, what are the few things that give you the most results? And uh, oftentimes it's sleep, nutrition, and exercise. Like those are the foundational things. And then building off that, it tends to be things like journaling or prayer or other things like that, meditation yep. that, that are sort of somewhat secondary. So it sounds like, Tim, what you're saying is you don't have this specific rote routine. You wake up at X time and you do A, B, C, D, E, and then you are perfect for the day. It's a set of tools in your tool belt, it sounds like. Is that right? Well, it is a set of tools. I do have a fairly predictable morning routine right now. I'll just tell you, it changes quite a lot depending on circumstances. So if I'm traveling and I'm living out of a hotel or at a friend's house in a guest room, it's different than when I'm at home, for instance. But Right now, I wake up between 7 and 7.30, uh, and depending on the day, will either take my dog for a walk outside for about 45 minutes, first thing, or I'll do it around noon. So it's sort of an A or B schedule, depending on what I need to do in the morning, work-wise. And then I come downstairs, I make my dog food, I put sardine oil over that. I crack wild planet sardines. I take those sardines. I put them into the refrigerator because I just find that chilled sardines are more appetizing later (laughs) than room temperature sardines. Uh, Then I have a shake, which is just with cold water with a scent protein as a whey protein isolate and athletic greens, which is a green supplement. Take a number of supplements. I could talk to what those are, but it's quite a lot in terms of the the supplement department right now. Then I will sit down and have a cup of tea. I will have been steeping water or rather heating water and then steeping tea while I'm having the shake and so on. And then I will do a one of several things, right? So this block of time is then reserved for phone calls with friends, generally asking questions if we're trying to both make tactical decisions. So right now, a lot, of, a lot of my friends are trying to decide to make decisions around finances and investing to invest or not to invest, if to invest, how to invest, blah, 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 right? And even if no action is taken, it's an excuse and a pretext for having a conversation with my friends, which has been great. And having a conversation and connecting, but also talking about something that can bring you value. In addition to just the relationship, I should yeah, say. Yeah, yeah, totally. And, and I would say, you know, as we were discussing before we hit record, that whatever cracks you have or whatever issues you think you've dealt with that you perhaps believed you tightly compartmentalized and locked away often come to the surface. So you have the opportunity to sort of try to digest like five years of therapy in a short period of time, or it can just get foot stomped into the lunchbox that is your psyche and it's the so you can deal with it or you view it as an opportunity or you can view it as punishment but either way you're going to have to deal with it and the reason i say this in the context of this conversation with my friends is that if you really want to get to the heart of someone's vulnerabilities insecurities beliefs and so on fears desires Talking about money and sex are the two fastest ways to get there. <laughs> sure. And uh, like if, if they have a talk therapist they've used for 10, 20 years, but they haven't talked a lot about those two things, then as soon as they talk to someone deeply about either topic, a lot comes to the surface. So in a way, the, using the vehicle of talking about investing is a way to safely talk about 
fears and hopes for friends to point out where other friends are just completely off base or making terrible assumptions about life. The ripple effects of talking about investing, I find to be much broader than investing alone. Okay, so flash forward, I have basically middle of the days can be a free for all, right? Because it depends a lot on what comes up these days. Then dinner with my girlfriend every night, very often we have a ritual at dinner. There's a particular candle we light. There's a way that we set up the table. We're using a table that is different from our normal table right now because the kitchen has effectively become my office. Uh, my, My girlfriend has the real office in the house. And that is our wind down procedure. We put on glasses for blocking blue light. And we have then after that, very often a sauna, which also has some health implications uh, that uh, I think are beneficial right now. I have a small barrel sauna, which are surprisingly affordable. And then we'll watch something to wind down. And we have a different series for weekdays, which happens to be The Amazing Mrs. Maisel, versus the weekend. So we very we made a conscious decision, this was my girlfriend's recommendation, to delineate between weekdays and weekends to change our behaviors and so that a little less like Groundhog Day, uh, at least on a on a weekly basis. So, yeah. so there are things, there are particular constants day to day, but it's not totally Vulcan military time. Yeah. So, if I were to ask you this question six months from now or six months ago, what were your routines or what you know your routines will be in six months from now? Like, would those be ninety percent the same with maybe some evolution? Like. Are, the, are you constantly evolving that, the routines that you do? I'm constantly testing. I hesitate to use the word evolve simply because tests don't always work out. So sometimes sure. it's devolving and uh, you, you try things and they end up being counterproductive and you then take stock and you reset. And I mean, I've certainly made, I mean, you can view it as mistakes or you can view it as I've I've made decisions, learned from those decisions. I've run experiments and some have produced the results I hoped and others have not. Others produce results that are better than I could have hoped. And in the case of routines, basically there's a list of, let's just say 10 things that I know consistently contribute to better days. If I were to try to measure my day in some way, such as say Jim Collins does. So he has his sort of negative one emotional valence, zero plus one. And if you were to look at your daily emotional experience and rate them on a simple scale like that, if I look at those in the plus column, they consistently have, let's just say arbitrarily, at least three of those 10 elements, right? And those elements could be journaling. Those elements could be long conversation with friend or podcast that I'm pleased with. That could be walking one to two hours. It could be sex. It could be uh, intense exercise, for instance, right? an exercise session. I don't need to hit all of these, but if I don't hit at least three or four, I'm making that number up, my days are more likely to be a zero or a negative one. Yeah. And the last thing I'll say, for now is that I I really firmly believe, and I didn't come up with this expression, but if you win the morning, you win the day. So I pay the most attention to the morning as my boot up sequence for the day. If that gets hijacked in some fashion, if I break, for instance, my phone tends to go on airplane mode uh, and actually pre-COVID and when this winds down a little bit in terms of my own personal overwhelmed because I have hundreds and hundreds of inbound text messages and so on from friends. So my time on phone has increased, but typically I would put my phone on airplane mode around say 7 or 8 p.m. and not take it off of airplane mode until at earliest 10 or 11 a.m. the next day. And if I violate that, I get myself into trouble. That is where it can negatively impact my sleep. That's where, for instance, I might get some phone call from a person I've been hoping to connect with. I take it at 8 a.m. right after getting up. This actually happened to me. And my friend's having a panic attack about something. In this case, he was caught in New York City. And it was just this avalanche of concerns, worries, panic, panic thoughts, requests, 
first thing in the morning and it screwed up my day, or I should say it caused me internally to screw up my own day for the next 10 to 12 hours. I was a real mess. So that boot up sequence in the morning, which is how I think of it, is really sacred and paramount in my daily experience. And I, I just want to encourage the listener to, to think back to what Tim said in the very beginning here. Like if you layered all these world-class performers, you know, all their, their sort of routines on top of another, one another, you know, you'd be doing these routines until 4 p.m. So pick what works for you, test and iterate. Yeah. And I want to go back to that, Tim, because you said you, you test and sometimes you realize there are mistakes, sometimes you fail, sometimes they're wrong. So I want to talk about failure from that. Like how has failure factored into your success? And, and how do you view failure? And I want to preface that by saying like, Everybody says, yeah, failure is a you know, necessary step on the path to success and failure is good and fail forward and blah, 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 blah. Like, I think a lot of people say that, but they don't actually believe it. You do so much testing and iterating mm -hmm. that you have to believe it just by virtue of all of the tests that you do. But I'm just curious of, of your experiences with failure and your views on it. Failure to me is, let's think about two things side by side. So risk if I think about risk, risk is the likelihood of an irreversible negative outcome to me. And the way I define that then dictates how I think about risk in many different areas. And most people who talk about risk tolerance don't actually take the time to define risk for themselves. What does that actually mean? Does it mean volatility? Does it mean things moving up and down? If so, what does that represent, right? What are we actually talking about when we talk about risk? Failure is similar, just in the way that people say, I just want to be successful. And that's, I think, utterly unhelpful and very often counterproductive unless it's defined really well. Failure should also be defined really well. So step number one, whether it's for my own navigation of life or for other people, is to define what failure looks like. What is failure to you? And I'm not talking about on a macro level. It's like, let's look at the last year. What would you put in the failure category? And then look for patterns. What makes those failures? It's easy to fetishize failure. And uh, as you said, you know, a lot of people are like, oh yeah, you got a like million failures and this, that, and the other thing, and then you have your success. It's not inevitable that if you fail a lot, you're going to succeed later, I should say. There are people who fail their entire lives. And yeah. uh, I think the difference that I see at least in those who fail from a conventional perspective, and I'm gonna come back to that, who ultimately have very large successes, there is an element of luck, I'm not gonna deny that, but they view failure as feedback. In other words, they really treat their approach to life in a very scientific way. And that is, none of us can predict the future. Most of us have very narrow bands of expertise, if any, and the world is full of unknowns. So you have to form a hypothesis. I think maybe if I do X, then Y, at Z point in time, and then you test. And if it works, you try it again or you tweak it. If it doesn't work at all, maybe you try it again. Maybe if it fails twice, okay, then you abandon it or you modify it. And in that sense, uh, the people who I see, and, and I've tried to certainly do this in my own life, to benefit from failure take a lot of time to do post-game analysis on things that go wrong or things that turn out differently from what they anticipate, right? And I was, I was chatting recently with a very, very high level investor. And he said, the, the important thing is to make no tier decisions. And no tier decisions means you make decision based on your current information and assumptions, and then you assess the results. But if we look at, for instance, my first home purchase in California, this was around early 2008. And uh, time to buy a house. great time to buy a house. And it was a stretch for me to buy this house. And I bought the house with an adjustable rate mortgage, like a lot of people did. And then what happened? Most of us know, or a lot of us who are listening, unless you're very young, know that the bottom fell out and the prices plummeted. So I ended up on the, on the wrong side of the trade, so to speak. I was, I was in a very bad position because the asset price of this first home, which was a real emotionally loaded, high price decision for me, dropped. I'm on an, an adjustable rate mortgage. I'm self-employed and 
there was a lot at the time I felt to worry about. Now, there's part of me that said, I can hold this indefinitely, no problem. Turned out my confidence in being able to do that was not reflected in my actual emotional response. (laughs) And uh, it, it became very, very stressful. I decided to actually move to San Francisco to rent an apartment because I wanted to seek opportunity there. So there there are a couple of things if we look back at my decision making. So I felt like there was more opportunity for me, social and professional in San Francisco. This is a, about, uh, so I actually bought the house in 2007. I take it back. I bought it in 2007. So I, I thought that I wanted to place myself geographically where I could have a larger surface area for luck. That just means that I would have the- interesting higher likelihood of chance encounters that could be very, very interesting to me personally and professionally. And San Francisco was that place. And I also thought to myself, well, I have a mortgage to pay. I can find a relatively inexpensive place in San Francisco. Why don't I rent my place at the time in San Jose? And found a management company because I knew I didn't want to manage renters to handle this. And it turned out to be a huge pain in the ass, even with the management company. And this dragged on for a while. The renters turned out, and there there are great tenants out there. Look, I've been a tenant. I've had other great tenants at other points in time, but these tenants were just terrible, right? They said, oh yeah, great. You can keep all your stuff in here. No worries, because I didn't want to have to put stuff into storage. And then they moved in. They're like, hey, get your stuff out. We we don't want your master bed and all this stuff. And once you have tenants in California, like they might as well own your house. So I was stuck in a very awkward position. I sold the house something like six months or nine months later at a a huge loss. Uh, Or for me, what was a huge loss. Now, yeah. What's important here is not to look at that and say, well, it was a failure and we all learn from failures and life moves on. For me, I spent a lot of time thinking about what happened and looking back at this. And there were a couple of things that I gleaned from this. So the first is, you know, I think it was someone like Henry Ford, although Henry Ford and Abraham Lincoln and Oscar Wilde get all the quotes on the internet who said, I'll let you set the price if I can set the terms. So this was the first example of really getting screwed because I paid too much attention to the price and not enough attention to the terms. Hmm. So lesson number one was pay incredible attention to terms and how they can change with worst case scenarios. So that was lesson number one. Lesson number two was I didn't need to make back the money I had lost in the way that I lost it. And that is, I'd been holding on to this house, dealing with these tenants and so on, because I said, well, I've lost X number of dollars, a few hundred thousand dollars in value, and I want to make that back, or at least cover all my costs, and then sell later at a higher price. But what I realized is that you don't need to make money back in the same asset class or the same way that you lost it. In fact, one could argue if you were so ill-equipped or had such poor decision-making that you lost all that money in the first place, maybe that's not where you should focus on making the money back. So I realized that you can make money back in a different method than that through which you lost it, right? That's really, really important. So I sold at a loss, which I'm glad I did because it freed up my attention to focus on my strengths instead of my weaknesses. That'd be one example, right? The four hour work week, the first book of mine was rejected. I always lose track. I lose track because it's a high number. I was rejected by 27 (laughs) publishers, something like that. And with each of those rejections, once I was actually in New York and pitching these publishers and getting rejected, I would always ask my agent, at the time and getting my agent was a whole separate story because I was also turned down by a bunch of agents. Why did you turn this down? Like, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it because we want to improve the book or kill it, improve the pitch or drop it. Could you please share with us any feedback, things we could improve, things that rubbed you the wrong way. learning from that rejection. That's right. And, you know, watching the video in a sense, right? Doing your best to kind of get the video of the match, right? To use, I used to watch a lot of video and back in the day when I was wrestling, although I'm not sure I want to embarrass myself by getting into that. But the, the point is, by the time I got to the last pitch, 
I had so much feedback that the last pitch is what got the contract for the four hour work week. And it was treating failure as feedback and taking the time to really solicit that feedback, process it unemotionally when possible, and then tweak that I think enabled a lot of this. And there's a whole long list. I remember the first startup investment I ever made was in this startup. I had decided in advance that I would allocate, because I'd always fantasized about going to business school, but I decided after going through the application a few process a few times that it just didn't make sense for a whole bunch of reasons we could talk about. It does make sense for a lot of people, but I'd always fantasized about Stanford Business School. And I decided, well, what if I took you know the 120K that I would have spent out of my own pocket to go there for two years? It's expensive. It's probably even more now. And created a sort of a virtual Tim Ferriss fund for learning how to invest in startups. And that, yeah. So that would mean if we spread it out over two years, that would mean 60K per year. Well, I got so excited about this first startup that I was considering investing in, which I did alongside someone more experienced, that I decided to put in 50K. Now you can see the problem here. (laughs) (laughs) Because you need to build a portfolio, or one could argue, especially in the early stage startup game, you need to build a portfolio so every startup can return the fund, so to speak, if they win. And you need enough bets so that if there's a high fatality rate that you stand a chance of succeeding. Well, I screwed that all up and that startup went to zero uh, in very short order. So I had to then work around it. But the question, so I think what you derive, the value you derive from failure for thinking about feedback still is directly related to the types of questions you ask yourself. So some of the questions I asked myself were, all right, what were the mistakes I made and why did I make them? Right. So it's not enough to identify your mistakes. You want to look at the ingredients that led up to that, that mistake. And right. the mistake I made was bet size. I, I chose a very uh, much too large of a bet size. And so I wanted to try to deconstruct why I made that mistake. All right, I got really excited about it and didn't consider the worst case scenario. I didn't consider what I would need to do if it didn't work out. So I, I did a deep dive into that. And then one of the other questions I would ask is, okay, well, you committed to two years. What the hell are you going to do? So if this is still the Tim Ferriss fund, how are you going to make this work? Notice I didn't ask, can this work? I asked, how can you make this work? Yeah. Interesting choice of words. There's a difference there, but it's a subtle difference, but it's a difference. Yeah. Subtle, but huge difference. Sure. And that is for brainstorming. It's not to come up with the final perfect solution, but to brainstorm possible ways And ultimately, that led to deciding to pitch myself as and operate as not just an investor, but as an advisor, which would be sweat equity. And that means I'd be putting in time and getting equity over a period of, say, a year or two, maybe once a quarter or something like that, instead of putting in money. And so that changed the lens through which I looked at the startup investing entirely. It no longer became just startup investing, but startup advising. And that's where some of my biggest successes came in because I wouldn't have had investing access to those deals to begin with. So in a sense, screwing up so badly and putting in this big chunk that went to zero ended up being a huge blessing in disguise because it forced me to look at other avenues of entering deals, i.e. as an advisor that had I only been cutting checks, probably wouldn't have enabled me to get into certain startups like Uber at the time, which had a different name, and well, first StumbleUpon, which led to Uber. And then that's another, actually, one could call mistake, but because StumbleUpon turned to zero for me. Yeah, I remember led that to, website. Led, led, led to Uber. And then a bunch of others like Shopify, for instance. I mean, I became an advisor to Shopify when they had something like eight employees. And now it's a publicly traded company with like thousands of employees. I don't know the total number. So those are a few that come to mind. Quick interruption. Hey, if you like what you're hearing, be sure to get the notes, quotes, and links in the action plan from this episode. Just go to jimharshawjr.com slash action. That's jimharshawjr.com slash action to get your free copy of the action plan. Now back to the show. You know, Tony Robbins says the, the quality of your life is directly proportional to the quality of the questions that you ask yourself. Like, are there other questions that you ask yourself? So 
For example, like, you know, having interviewed hundreds of people for the podcast here, these world-class performers and you know, a handful of guests that we've interviewed in common. And what I find is that you know, their success is never based on or rarely based on doing the thing that they are well known for. It's always some version of hitting the pause button. And I've given it a definition. I call it the productive pause. And the definition is it's a short period of focused reflection around specific questions that leads to clarity of action and peace of mind. And I find a lot of clarity of action and peace of mind when I listen to you talk about some of these questions. Are there other questions that you use or have used in the past that allow you to cut through that psychological red tape to help you make decisions? Definitely. And before I answer that, I will answer that, but I want to return to the optimal routine or optimal performance through routine point I made earlier, which is that I need routine just to get to normal first. That's the reason for routine for me. And similarly, I should just, as an example, say that I almost never have journalists shadow me for a period of time. I get a lot of requests from writers, some very good writers who I respect a lot, who want to say, track me for a day or two and record what I do and tell the story. And I, at least in the last 10 years, have not really done much of that. It might be an afternoon, but never a day or two. And that's because if people listening to this, or if you were to look at what I do on a daily basis, you would think to yourself, most of the time, how does this guy get anything done? (laughs) Because I'm puttering around, I'm making tea, I'm coming up with excuses not to do what I should be doing. I'm taking the dog for a walk when the dog's already had three walks. I'm doing all of these things that would, uh, well, they don't just look like procrastinating, they are procrastinating. And a lot of the time I will seem and am very unfocused. So the, the moral of the story is that it's not about being optimally efficient for me because that's an impossible finish line. It's about choosing the right targets and asking the right questions so that you can still produce tremendous success and outsized returns, even if you only get a few things right. Does that make sense? Because it doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah, it does. It doesn't matter how many mistakes you make. And this is obviously super simple, simplified, but you can make a lot of mistakes. You can get a lot of the day wrong as long as, say, through 80-20 analysis, which sounds like you've covered a lot on the show before, you're choosing even for 60 minutes or 30 minutes of your day, you are focused on something that is very high leverage. So the questions that can help with that are things like, and this might sound unconnected, but what might this look like if it were easy? So if you're, if you're trying to come up with an answer, what might this look like if it were easy? And then journaling on it, it's not enough to think about it. You have to put pen to paper or type this out. I like handwriting personally. Like what might this look like if, if it were easy? And this could be anything. But you know, you mentioned Tony Robbins. I mean, another expression of his is uh, complexity is the enemy of, of execution. And I think that that's true all over the place, whether it's relationships, whether it's investing, whether it's parenting, whether it's coaching, sports, like complexity is very often the enemy of execution. So what might this, writing a book, what might this, looking at my finances, what might this, fill in the blank, look like if it were easy, right? That's one. Another is what do I find easier to do than my friends? Like, whoa, what do my friends consider me good at that I find easy that they find more difficult, right? A lot of my questions are seemingly absurd, right? But if, for instance... And I want to stop yeah. for just a second, Tim. Like, for listener, like, take those in. As always, I'll have these in the action plan. You can go to jimharshawjr.com slash action, download these. They'll be right there. You can print them out, save them, whatever. But like, digest just any one of those questions. I mean, really stop, productive pause, stop, answer that question. If you're driving or on the treadmill right now, like, answer that out loud for yourself. Speak it out loud. Or as soon as you get back to your desk or somewhere where you can write, like write out the answer to that around pick anything, like any, any channel, like, like Tim said, you know, any, you know, whether it's finances, relationships, health, 
whatever it is, like digest those. But sorry, go ahead, Tim, if you have more to add there. No, I was was going to add an emphasis on absurd questions. And the purpose of the absurd questions, much like the Peter Thiel, why can't you accomplish your 10-year goals in the next six months or any variant of that, is that it productively shatters your current process for answering questions. You need to sort of break the boundaries of your brainstorming to even attempt to answer a question like that. And similarly, I'll ask questions. I almost never ask a question like, how can I increase podcast revenue 10%? That is not a question that I will ever ask generally. The question that I will ask, even if it ends up producing 10% additional revenue is how, if I had to, gun against the head, come up with a list of options for 10xing the revenue of the podcast, 10x, not 10%, 10xing the revenue of this podcast this year, what might that look like? Yeah, it brings you to different places and to different answers and suggestions and ideas than, than the 10% yeah. question. And, and it doesn't have to be financial. The financial is just easy to use as an example because it includes a measurable, but it, it could be something like, how could I, so what I would consider a, an unhelpful question is, how can I stress less about money? It's not inspiring. It's not sharp enough, in a sense, for me at least to get a mental foothold into. So I might ask something like, how could I, if I had to, again, this is, this is not a nice to have, like if you had to gun against the head, you have to decrease your financial worries 90%. And I I realize this is, this is going to be a sensitive question and example, because there are people, including family members of mine who have been laid off from service jobs that are in very difficult positions, right? So I, I'm not trying to trivialize these difficulties, but even if you are in a very difficult set of circumstances, these types of exercises in writing, using these questions as prompts, can bring up ideas that would never otherwise occur to you as options, right? So if you had to gun against the head, decrease your financial worries 90%, what might you do? And the answers could be like, I'm not giving financial advice, I'm not a registered investment advisor, none of that. But in my case, right, it could be like, I'm going to sell everything even at a depressed price and go completely to cash. Now, I'm not going to do that because I think it's a bad idea for a bunch of reasons, but that could be one that I put on the list. Okay. Another one could be, right. And okay. 90%. If I ask that question, okay, I I need to decrease my financial worry 90%. Well, which asset classes are giving me the most kind of headache per dollar, right? Or difficulty of sleeping per dollar, right? And let's just say hypothetically, that's real estate. Okay, well, maybe I'd make a loss on the real estate. And then guess what? I already brainstormed this. What if I had to 10x my podcast revenue? I can make up those losses via the podcast. Let me cut those assets. Or let me figure out a way to call my bank and renegotiate the mortgages. Can I do that? I don't know. Okay, but that's an idea that came about because I asked the question, how could I decrease my worries 90%? If you're in a position where you're unemployed, okay, well, would starting a business on, I already mentioned one of these companies, you know, Shopify or WooCommerce or something like that, would that provide me with some optimism to offset that 90%, even if it doesn't turn out successful? Would reaching out to friends of mine and asking them, even if I don't need the money now, would you be willing to help me for a period of time, three to six months as a group of 10, 20 people, would that make you feel better just to have asked, right? So that you hopefully get some positive feedback or to create a GoFundMe page that might provide you with, with some help or applying to a small business, you know, SBA loan or fill in the blank, right? You will come up with a different list based on that question than you would if you ask something more general, like how can I make myself feel better? How can I worry less about finances? Make it ambitious. And that ambition, in my experience, just produces a better list of options that you will brainstorm from which you will find better action, possible action steps. Tim, is this why you've been able to create such outsized results? Because there's people listening right now who say, well, I have these morning routines and I also like to procrastinate and you know, walk my dog for a third time and then go get another cup of coffee and then check email for a while, right? Is this why you've been able to create outsized results? If you were able to boil it down to, well, I guess sort of two questions here. Number one, 
like one habit, like if there, is there one habit that you do or have done that you would most credit with your success? And number two, is there also a mindset and a belief that goes along with this? Yeah, the morning routines and all that stuff is just scaffolding. That's not the project. That's what supports building whatever you're building, but it's just safety net for me of sorts. Routines, at least a lot of the routines we've discussed, do not help you pick targets. So I, I suppose if I had to pick a routine or a habit that helps me to do that, it's asking seemingly ridiculous questions, whether it's in business, finance, friendship. I ask questions that would reflect a level of ambition or delusion that would make me seem ridiculous to, say, friends of mine from 20 years ago, right? Or less so my friends now because I've surrounded myself with people who do the same thing. But I'd say there are a few things that come to mind. The first is asking these absurd questions. And um, I have a blog post that maybe you could put in the show notes, something like 11 questions that changed my life or 17 questions that changed my life, which lists out a number of these questions that I use regularly. Like, am I hunting antelope or field mice Right, is one which we, we can get into later. But a lot of it boils down to 80-20 principle. I would read uh, you know, Richard Koch, K-O-C-H, 80-20 principle. He has a number of these books. You can kind of pick whichever one appeals to you. But I would read that. I would then emphasize that I think my results have come from routines that keep me from flaming out or self-destructing, so, which is a lot of what I've described. Then asking absurd questions, running tests, and looking at 80-20 analysis routinely using this exercise called fear setting to try to ensure that I am not paralyzed by unfounded fears. Some fears will be well-founded, but a lot of them will not be. So fear setting, people can find that at tim.blog forward slash TED, and they'll also see the TED talk that talks about the college brush with suicide if they'd like to see that. And one more habit that it's really a collection of habits that I'd like to mention. And that is number one, assuming that you're the average of the five people you associate with most. Financially, emotionally, in terms of asking questions, you're the average of the five people you associate with most. And so you, you really want to proactively try to develop relationships with people who will make you better and people who you can make better. And uh, so it's very helpful then to have complementary skills, but not exactly the same skills. And one habit that I get into that I engage in, which is, which is a question really, or a request that I see commonly across a lot of my friends who are very, very high performers is they consistently ask their smart friends to tear apart their ideas. So for instance, one of my friends, very successful in many domains, many, many domains, as an operator, as a business builder, as an investor, as a husband, and so on. But in the investing world, just because it's the easiest one to use with numbers and a scoreboard, he hired someone full-time to help him manage investments. And every time this friend has an investment idea, let's say he wants to buy... Amazon, just making it up. He will ask the person he hired to come up with every reason why he should not buy Amazon. Like, I want you to talk me out of everything that I want to buy. <laughs> and if I want to sell something, I want you to try to talk me out of it. So he's actively trying to solicit disconfirming evidence and trying to truly get to both sides of the story. Yeah, exactly. And to always look at the opposite side, right? So if, if someone gives you five reasons why you should buy X, then he would ask, okay, well, once you buy it, what are the five reasons you would sell it? And if someone can't answer the second question, it should lead you to question perhaps how well thought through the first set of recommendations are. So I will oftentimes, whether it's in a personal relationship, let's just say I'm, I'm thinking of how to improve my relationship with my girlfriend, or I'm thinking about anything, right? It could be improving my 
my relationship with my dog or dog training or investing or whatever. If I, if I have an idea that I think is a good idea, one of the first things I will do is call one of my friends. I think is not necessarily a domain expert, but someone who is really a key part of our friendship is that we can speak blunt truth to each other. And that is so valuable in a world of kind of glad handing and political correctness. Somebody who can just be like, that's a terrible idea. And let me tell you six reasons why. I will go to them and I will give them the idea and say, I want you to pick that apart. Like, please try to dismantle that and pick it apart. Like, I want to know where that could be wrong. I want to know how that could backfire. That's another habit, I would say, that has become increasingly, increasingly valuable. And last but not least, like, how have I succeeded? A lot of it's luck. Like, I mean, there is a lot of timing involved with this, but I'm always looking for asymmetric bets. Asymmetric bets means whether it's the first sports nutrition company that I started, whether it's with, say, the, the writing of the first book, the startup investing, I'm looking for investments, bets. Investments, by the way, also apply to your time. It's not just money we're talking about, right? If, 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 if you're a human, you are an investor. You are deciding how to allocate your resources, including time. So whether you like it or not, you're an investor. And I'm looking for bets that have a very limited downside. I can understand the downside and cap the downside. I understand that really well. And there are ways that I can cap it, such as with the two-year real-world MBA that I created with the sort of 120K over two years with the Tim Ferriss funds, like max downside financially, 120K, right? It's defined. It's defined, but the max upside could be 10X, 100X, 1,000X. And those numbers don't have to be that big, but uh, I'm constantly thinking about asymmetric returns and a few resources that I think are helpful for that. You mentioned Tony Robbins. I think his book on money, Master of the Game, has some good examples of that. I think More Money Than God, which is a book about hedge funds, although I would generally warn people away from investing in hedge funds, that world has become very, very different since that book was written. But nonetheless, gives you a good example of asymmetric bets and how to think about asymmetric bets, not just in the stock market, which I think can be very risky, not just in finances, but all over the place, right? Like what are the little things you could do that have the possibility of a big impact? And if we look at say a relationship, it's not like the big gigantic conversations that make the difference. It can be something really small. It's like, okay, I'm going to commit to like writing a really loving note on a post-it note at least once a week and like putting it on the mirror that I know my partner is going to see. That is an asymmetric bet. If, a lot of upside to that. Very little, little downside. Yeah. So if I, if I had to try to parse out the things that seem to have worked for me, those are, those are a few that come to mind. And I am wrong more often than I'm right. I mean, I, I do think that I make a lot of mistakes. I overspend. I screw things up. I piss off my girlfriend. <laughs> I do all sorts of things that are the opposite of optimal. But because I ask these absurd questions, which help you to find asymmetric bets on a routine basis, and I journal, don't just think about it, and I journal on these things, I can make better decisions, right? So for instance, this is top of mind for me, so I apologize if, if this, to everybody listening, if this seems one-dimensional, but it's not because the financial examples I'm giving, as I described earlier, really bleed over into a lot of other areas. So one of the reasons, and I was journaling in Morning Pages yesterday, and I realized part of the reason I'm feeling a lot of stress around finances is I feel I need to make decisions now. I feel like there's so much flux. I spotted I mean, coronavirus. I've been tracking since January. I have really up until at least two or three weeks ago, was, was able to predict things very accurately. So given all that, I've, I've been feeling tremendous time pressure to act. But I've been reading to try to offset that in some respect. So like Warren Buffett, don't just do something, stand there. <laughs> Although it's very, very simplified. So I was asking in the journaling process, all of these questions, and they weren't quite right. I could see how these questions were going to produce garbage answers, like garbage in, garbage out. So if you ask yourself, what the hell is wrong with me? your brain is a meaning-making machine. It's going to give you answers, right? If you ask, why didn't I do X? You're going to come up with 10 reasons you should whip yourself. 
And I was producing those types of questions and I recognized that those were going to be really unhelpful. And then one of the questions I came up with was, what types of opportunities might I be able to find if I'm forced to wait a month or two months before making any, taking any action? And just that alone, there are going to be options. This is not a short-term experience from an economic perspective that we're going through right now. There are going to be opportunities later. And in my case, I asked, what might opportunities look like that I can wait for for a month or two that I have unique access to? Right, And that's not going to apply to everyone listening to this. But if you've gone through the thought process of asking yourself, what do I find easier than my friends? What do my friends say I do well that surprises me? And when you start to ask these questions early on, and you're looking at asymmetric bets, and you're figuring out what you are not only good at, but have greater endurance for because you find them easier to do, over time, as you look at the world through these lenses, you're going to get to the point where you have unique perspective, unique ability, unique endurance, unique fill in the blank, or I should say unique enough in those categories that over time, viewing the world through the eyes of a scientist, aka there is no such thing as a failed experiment. As long as you design it properly, you look at the results and you learn from it. Failure is feedback, right? It's all feedback. So you come up with low cost, fast, you know, limited duration experiments, asymmetric bets. So you're never betting the farm on anything. I find that eventually luck will be on your side. And I'm sure that's a simplistic way of viewing the world, but that's how it's worked for you know dozens of my friends. I've seen friends go from making $100,000 or less a year to being billionaires. I've seen multiple friends of mine do that. And there's a tremendous amount of luck involved that I don't think being a billionaire is necessarily a laudable goal. And uh, most of them got there not having that as a goal, but they seem to have approached it in a very similar way. So those are my best attempts at a few, few ideas at least. Yeah. Tim, you have given us the goal right there. I mean, really how to have outsized results, really, which is what we're all looking to do, right? And to have better results in anything, right? Whether it's our work, whether it's our relationships, whether it's our, our health and our fitness, our time spent with our kids or, or whatever it is, um, that's concrete, actionable stuff that we can do. So Tim, thank you so much. You're very welcome. And uh, last but not least, I should also say, I know sent to billionaires, people who have hundreds of millions of dollars who are completely miserable. So lest you believe that, that all of that is going to f fix all of your problems, pick up a book called Radical Acceptance by Tara Brock, B-R-A-C-H also, and uh, consider giving that a gander. There's another one called Already Free by Bruce Tift, T-I-F-T, which I find exceptional. So you could look at both of those and consider them as an adjunct to whatever professional pursuits you might go after. Excellent. Yeah. And for the listener, as always, I'll have those in, in the action plan. Wonderful. Thanks for the time. Tim, thank you so much for your time. And for the listener, uh, well, Tim, why don't you tell the listener for, for anybody who's hiding under a rock out there where they can find you, follow you, uh, get your five bullet Friday emails, et cetera. Yeah. You can find everything at tim.blog. I have uh, put up probably close to a thousand blog posts over the years. You can find them sort of by topic. So language, learning, investing, whatever you want. The podcast has about it's close to 500 million downloads now and focuses on routines, habits, tools that high performers use. That, that can be found at tim.blog forward slash podcast. And if people want one to start with, I'd suggest they listen to Derek Sivers. His is hilarious. So Derek Sivers, S-I-V-E-R-S. -E so if you just go to tim.blog forward slash podcast and search Sivers, you'll find some really fun stuff. And then the newsletter. Yeah, I send out a newsletter every Friday. It's the five most interesting fascinating or useful things that week that I've found. Often they are things I'm listening to, things I'm reading, gadgets, gizmos, supplements, hacks, well, as much as I tend to dislike that word these days, but sort of clever workarounds. Anything that I have found that has really caught my attention that week, I put in this free newsletter, it goes out to between one and two million people every Friday. And it's been going for years now. I love it. And you can, you can sign up for that for free at tim.blog forward slash Friday. Excellent. 
Tim, thank you so much for making time to come on the show. Yeah, my pleasure, man. Thanks for listening. If you want to apply these principles into your life, let's talk. You can see the limited spaces that are open on my calendar at jimharshawjr.com slash apply, where you can sign up for a free one-time coaching call directly with me. And don't forget to grab your action plan. Just go to jimharshawjr.com slash action. And lastly, iTunes tends to suggest podcasts with more ratings and reviews more often. You would totally make my day if you give me a rating and review. Those go a long way in helping me grow the podcast audience. Just open up your podcast app if you have an iPhone. Do a search for success through failure. Select it and then scroll the whole way to the bottom where you can leave the podcast a rating and a review. Now, I hope this isn't just another podcast episode for you. I hope you take action on what you learned here today. Good luck and thanks for listening.